You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Good evening and thanks for joining me here on this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and on tonight's show, Lisa Regan has details about the Galway West End Street Feast that takes place on the June bank holiday weekend. Award-winning writer Susan Boyle talks about her collaboration with the British Museum to create an Egyptian beer and board beer's Denise Murphy has details about the food and drink features at this year's Bloom, which starts next Thursday, the 31st of May and runs until Monday. Monday the 4th of June in Dublin's Phoenix Park. If at any point you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie or tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. So to start the show off tonight, our first guest is Lisa Regan. Based in the West End area of Galway, Lisa is involved in the upcoming street feast that is scheduled to take place there next month. And she joins us on the phone now to tell us more. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Lisa, thanks so much for taking the call today. You're involved in the Galway West End Street Feast. This is the second year of it and it was a huge success last year whenever you did it for the first time. Yeah, we did it in June, actually June 4th as well last year on the Bank Holiday Monday. Sometimes you find with the Bank Holiday Weekends, there's so many of them that come together and by the time the Monday rolls around, people are, you know, looking for something to do to get out of the house. Um, so we just said we'd try it last year and uh, we pulled it together in about six weeks and we literally could not get over I suppose the amount of people that turned up we nearly close to 2,500 people that came to uh, the West End on the day and we just had a really really nice time so we thought we'd plan it better and bigger this year uh, for 2018 The West End part of Galway might not be an area that listeners are familiar with it's over the bridge tell us about some of the amazing businesses that are there yeah, so it's one of the oldest uh, neighbourhoods in Galway and I suppose what sets the West End apart from the rest of Galway is it's um, a lot of residential with commercial, so it's a very nice neighbourhood feel. Um, like I live and work in the area and so would a lot of other people. The stores and a lot of the restaurants and bars as well, um, the owners work in the businesses. So you're meeting the owners of the business when you come in, so people find that just so lovely when they come in and when you cross the bridge over from uh, Shop Street, you come along there and you start at the bridge mills and at the top of Dominic Street there we have a Michelin star and mirror and then we have Tartar which is another one of the Ecoa Group's restaurants run by JP and Jurgen McMahon and then we have Dila Restaurant which is another award winning restaurant at the top of people we're very familiar with for brunch in Galway um, but also now for their evening menu and as we walk down the street then you come on to some really well-known restaurants such as Rouge and then we've Carol's on Dominic Street, we've Paddy's Poutine, we have an American Apothecary, we've the Salt House and then we've Monroe's, the Roisin Dove people will be familiar for, for live music, then we've John Joe's, the Beer House, we've Nova, Deli La Tasca, Urban Grind, the Secret Garden and then you're coming on to the Universal, then you have Massimo and then you have Ernie's, which is one of the oldest uh, grocery stores in Galway. And then you finish up on Sea Road with uh, the award-winning Kai restaurant. So we're inundated with food and places to eat down here. 
Well, let's mention Kai in a bit more detail now because Jess Murphy, who is the chef owner there, is the best chef in Ireland, officially the best chef in Ireland. Officially. (laughs) We knew it for a long time, but we were delighted to see it there last week. Yeah, Jess won. uh, She had won the best chef in Connacht for a good few years and uh, she took home gold then on a Tuesday night up in Dublin when she was named best chef in Ireland. And uh, it's just really, really nice. It's a really nice accolade for her for all her work. She's a real pioneer of um, of food down here in the west of Ireland and in Ireland in, in general. Uh, she's really, really passionate about um, local food in season. And she does just such crazy and beautiful things with those foods that it was so nice for her to be recognised for all her, her hard work and also her commitment to only using produce and suppliers that she knows herself are, you know, very local, very seasonal and very ethically right in what they're doing. So it was it was a great award win for, for Kai there. They were actually seven on Friday, so there's seven years there now on Sea Road. So it was a lovely week for them. I can't believe they're only seven because they seem to they seem to have been there forever. Certainly whenever <laughs> I'm in Galway, it's it's always one of those port of calls that I have to get to. And it was great to see oh, her yeah. on on the television last week on the healthy appetites. And as yeah, you say, she did great. she's always yeah promoting the the local locally Always. sourced ingredients there so she had the ackle mountain lamb as part of her menu yeah. in the program oh jess is just such a pioneer for the local and it's not just about like if you want to if you're a supplier and you're listening to this and you think oh my god i have a really good product like jess will want to meet you she'll nearly be at your kitchen table having the chat yeah she goes out to farms out to like she's out in brady's abattoir there you know she works so closely with gannet fish that's what she does. Like, it's not just, oh, yeah, great, you're local and use you. She wants to know all about you, how you've come about and what your produce is. And I think that you can taste those flavours on the face because she kind of loves all her suppliers as much as she loves creating dishes from what she has there. And I think that that's kind of what sets Kai apart. Um, they just have a, a wonderful, very simple menu down there that everybody can enjoy, really. And the Galway West End Street Festival is very much about bringing different foods and ingredients to the public. You have a showcase as part of the, the festival on the 31st of May. Yeah, we're starting on the 31st of May now and as part of the Region of Gastronomy, the Galway was awarded that this year. We have a food truck down there from the 31st of May right up until the 4th of June. It'll be there for our kind of bumper day on the Monday, the 4th as well too. And we're getting businesses in the West End to do pop-ups on the food truck down at Raven's Terrace. So people can really kind of sample a taste of the restaurants that they might love or they might never have been into. So we thought it was a really nice way of introducing people to the concept of the restaurant or the bar or the the coffee shop and just see, oh yeah, that's really nice. They really enjoyed that little sampler and hopefully then it will just get them to, to realise that they're there and that they can go there all the time. And um, Raven's Terrace is really great because just down there it's overlooking onto the Clara and then to the left then you're looking up to the main thoroughfares of Galway and it's right in the heart of the West End. So it's a really, really lovely spot. We're hoping for a bit of dry weather so that people can sit out and enjoy whatever they're enjoying from the food truck. And of course, if the weather is fine, there'll be lots of families out and food festivals are always a fantastic way to introduce the smallies to different foods and get them to try some new ingredients as well. Yeah, like last year, that's what we were, we have um, on, on Monday the 4th. It's a really family day, but 
family friendly day we have like bloom makers and face painters and then we have live like bluegrass music and we have beautiful benches and everything that everybody can sit out and there's no alcohol at this event it's really family friendly so there'll be loads of different foods but even just speaking on uh, getting them to try things um, Kai are doing for their pop up on the food truck they're doing a raw milk ice cream and the raw milk is coming from Jimmy's uh, raw milk and tune you know so it would be a really nice way of people to really taste I suppose milk how milk really should taste so just really simple things like that using really good projects to create stuff that we all love like simple things like ice cream um, and there's going to be oysters and just all foods that are really accessible in the west of Ireland but perhaps people haven't tried you know and you're adopting an eco-friendly approach to the festival this year yeah, we're really passionate about sustainability down here. Uh, it's one thing that I could safely say about 85% of the businesses are doing already and the rest are definitely coming on board. Um, just our commitment to using compostable takeaway containers in terms of coffee cups or if people are getting food to take away. And we've partnered with Walsh Waste, which are just uh, a business that just are seriously to the forefront of, of refuse management. It's like they're helping us here with our food bins and they're helping us, you know, so that we make sure that everything is going to the right place. And waterways don't send anything to the landfill. So they look for other solutions to what they have um, in their waste collection. And we just thought, let's set a precedent this year and let's just put the marker on this festival that if you want to be involved in it, then your, your packaging and what people are taking your food away in has to be recyclable and it has to be or biodegradable. You can't be in there with single-use plastics or anything like that. And I think that if, if we take ownership of that, then we set the precedent, you know, for, for, for everybody then, you know. And again, because it's family-friendly, I think it's a great example to set to, to the young yeah. people, to the children as well, that this is the way that we want the the universe to go so to speak yeah and just be more uh, very much a more conscientious community and just get people thinking and like if we all collectively take responsibility it's much easier and it's like anything you know when everybody has to pay a levy for the plastic bags the 22 cents like we just got on with it and now it's just part of our life and it's like the smoking ban you know we can't smoke in certain places now we adapt and we change you know so I think it's just, if you keep on pushing the boundaries and saying, no, sorry, actually, there's no single-use plastics. We have to take more responsibility for what we're doing. People just grow in behind you because it's actually almost the easier option anyway in the long run. Absolutely. And I just want to ask you now, before we finish up, about another festival that you're involved in, the International Refugee Food Festival. Yeah, this is a project that we started last year. Um, again, it's, it's, it's myself and, and Jess at Kai that... Um, I suppose, started working with the UN CHR and we held a dinner last October in Loam here in Galway um, where we worked with um, three chefs that were living in direct provision. They were from Syria and we just said that we would do a dinner for that night and we would really highlight the side of people living in direct provision because at that time they actually were not allowed to work in this country. Um, and it's moved on um, a little bit, and we're hoping to move it on further now. Um, we There has been changes slightly, but we need to get more changes in so that they can work in the hospitality sector. Because as we know, the hospitality sector is seriously down on chefs and people working in that area. And we have all these people here that are coming um, in from Syria and places like Cameroon and Afghanistan. And a lot of them are actually trained chefs. And we would love to welcome them into the hospitality world here in Ireland. So for the month of June, we've over 15 locations throughout Ireland and some of Ireland's best restaurants um, are taking on a Syrian chef. They're Syrian, Syrian bakers, um, some, from, some from Cameroon, some from North Africa. And they're going into these restaurants and they're cooking with them for a night or a night or two or a service. 
um, just in order to open the door and to showcase different food uh, backgrounds and cultures and also just to show how easy it is for everybody to work together and to integrate into society through food. And we're hoping that by this movement then it'll kind of, I suppose, spearhead on more movement at government policy level so that people living in direct provision can contribute and can work in Ireland. As you say, there there is a serious chef crisis in Ireland mm-hmm. because there's such a shortage of chefs. And, and obviously we have these communities and that they're not allowed to work and they're not allowed to do mm-hmm. things that many of us take for granted in our daily lives. Exactly. So to be able to to utilize them and give them a sense of purpose, it's, it's hugely yeah. important and it's beneficial on both sides. Absolutely. And as well as that, like they're coming here from such horrific circumstances, you know, they're coming here with absolutely nothing, but also they want to contribute. They want to, to be part of Biden's part of life in Ireland. And I think that we have a clear pathway there for work. We worked with three absolutely brilliant guys, Amir and Ahmed, here on, on, in, in October. And it was just incredible, the skill set that they brought um, and they, also the diversity that they brought and like different food concepts and things like that. And it's the marrying of like different food ideas and cultures and flavors and tastes that makes some of the best foods in the world. And it's great working together with people as well too. So for me, it's just a no-brainer. But I understand things can be slow to progress. But even since October of last year, we've really moved things on. So I'm very positive about the future and I'm really hoping that by the end of the, the month of June, there'll be more and more positive steps, as I said, made made at legislative level at, at government because we're going to showcase them and we're really going to highlight it. And we've done it throughout Ireland. So it's, it's not just concentrated in one area. It's actually so beneficial throughout the whole country. So I know that a lot of a lot of kitchens in Ireland are really, really in dire straits and need the chef. So let's utilise what we have here. I'm always so keen to highlight the benefits of collaboration here in the programme mm-hmm. and the dinner in Loam last year. You, as you say, Jess was involved in it. You had Miyazaki yeah. from Cork. Yeah, um, Damien. Damien from, from Henry Gray, who are yeah. all like, I am immigrant is the, the T-shirt yeah. type, type things that they wear. Like they're not from Ireland. Yeah, and they've they've come here and they've made Ireland their home and also only if they made Ireland their home, they're actually like leading the way here in terms of, of food and food direction. I mean, Mai just opened up a second business there down in Cork and just is, is doing phenomenally well. And Damien, you know, has a Michelin star up there in Black Rock and Jess is just one best chef here down in, 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 in Ireland. So, I mean, there's really, really positive things happen, but they just want to be, I suppose, even more receptive to people that are here living in direct vision that have a skill set and that we can utilize. So I think it was a really clever way just to to highlight that absolutely so lots of collaboration going on then for the yeah. the Galway West End Street Feast just remind us of the dates the times and where people can get more information oh excellent so it's starting on the 31st of May and it's running right until the 4th of June and the 4th of June is the bumper day so that's the day that every business will be out so if you can make any of the days that's going to be the the, the date the, the day to be here and that's starting at 11 and running until 4 and then every other day there's just signature pop-ups from restaurants throughout the West End and it starts at 12 in the afternoon and it runs until 6 and all the information is on our social channels so Instagram and Facebook and it's just Galway's West End and you can get us on Twitter or you can get us on com. but everything is happening on social live so if you just want to pop onto the Facebook page that's probably the best place to see what's going to be happening and all the details are there 
Brilliant, Lisa. Well, it sounds like an amazing few days, an ideal way to spend the bank holiday. And we'll keep our fingers crossed for fine weather for you. (laughs) Thanks, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. You're very welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break I was talking to Lisa Regan about the Galway West End Street Feast and her commendable involvement in the International Refugee Food Festival which highlights the positive nature of collaboration. If you missed that and you're just tuning in now you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8 o'clock and the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app and it's also on the taste.ie website voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. Still to come tonight, Denise Murphy has details about the food and drink features at this year's Bloom, which starts next Thursday, the 31st of May and runs until Monday, the 4th of June in Dublin's Phoenix Park. Next, though, we're going to hear from one of our show regulars, Susan Boyle. Susan is an award-winning drinks writer and she's currently working on a fascinating project with the British Museum that delves into the history and taste of Egyptian beer. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinter. Susan, usually whenever we have you on the programme, we're talking about wine, but tonight it's about beer. You have a thirst for the history of beer. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, I do. I've been working on this really interesting project, Sharon, with the British Museum in London. Um, It's part of a series that they're doing to help people engage more with the items that are in the museum, but people who maybe not be able to visit the museum. So they're doing a a series of videos called Pleasant Vices. So this is going through the artefacts that they have in the museum and looking for the things that link to things that we've always loved as humans, but maybe aren't always the best for us. So in relation to that, I'm working on a project about Egyptian beer because the Egyptians loved beer and there's lots of artefacts in the museum that kind of pertain and relate to that. And there's a whole team of you involved in this. So there's a curator, there's a brewer, there's a team of Egyptologists. and Yeah, I know, a team of Egyptologists because it was really important for this. If you're doing a rebrewing project, so looking back into history and trying to work out how people did a specific thing then, and in this case, making beer, you want to make sure that you can be as accurate as possible and you're not just making things up as you go along. So part of this project, which was really interesting for me, was the fact that we really, really did our best effort to keep it as accurate as we possibly could looking at the method. So we had Egyptologists, we had um, a brewer on board, I was working with a food historian and a curator, and it meant that every decision that we made in relation to the brewing of this beer was all backed up by archaeology, by evidence in the museum, which meant that we could really kind of make a good guess um, as accurately as we possibly could as to what beer was like um, more than 3,000 years ago and how they were actually making it. So the process of this was that we kind of got down to the nitty gritty of of making a beer in as much as possible in keeping with the methods that we can assess they were using. Um, it, the it, ancient Egyptians were using, which is quite remarkable. So it's a bit of a taste of history. And initially what you discovered was it was a gruel type beer, but because you also discovered that the builders of the pyramids were paid in beer, you kind of thought mm, they couldn't be drinking a lot of that of a day. 
Yeah, well, you see, so I was kind of of the impression that the reason why we've evolved as human beings is because we've had an ability to be able to seek out the things that we find delicious. And those things that are delicious are often very high in nutrients as well. So I kind of thought that if someone's going to go to the bother of making all this beer, and we know that the um, the workers who are making, um, who are building the pyramids in Giza were paid in at least 10 pints of beer a day, we knew that this had to be something that they liked drinking because no one would go to the bother of making it and certainly no one goes to bother drinking it if it wasn't delicious. So the curator is working with Tasha Marks was pretty sure that it was going to be horrible because she had read a lot of evidence that said that it was thick and it was porridgey and it was gruely and it was fermented and there were bits floating in it. Um, and I was hesitant to believe that. So in the process of making this beer, we've, we've basically proved that the beer was delicious, first off, that it was bright and golden, that yes, there was residue in the bottom, but that it was crisp and it was clean. And we fermented it in a replica terracotta vessel. So we took one of the vessels in the British Museum and we had a ceramicist throw a vessel in its likeness. We used that as a fermenting vessel. So by using that, we also realised that they had a much deeper understanding of the importance of temperature control in relation to brewing than I think anyone had ever really written about, to my knowledge, before. So if you brew, it's very important to kind of keep your temp- temperature within specific ranges. And um, First of all, because you need to make sure your enzymes are working and that your yeast can work nicely. And if it's too hot, you'll get like strange flavours and esters or you might get other, um, other cultures and bacterial things happening that you don't want. So being able to brew and have a brewing vessel that's terracotta that keeps your liquid at about 10 degrees lower than the ambient room temperature meant that you can control your fermentation better and get a much more delicious beer. Of course, like it was very important that you got the the actual ceramic fermentation type jug properly yes. made because you can't use one that's in the museum obviously because I know, it's an artifact. I know, I was like and I thought they'd loads of them and they might be able to give us one. But like when they've gone to the the uh, process of preserving things uh, in the museum, these artifacts are things that we can look at and use as reference, but we certainly can't take and start brewing in them ourselves. Um, so that led us to have to find um, someone who could work on a, a, a vessel. And luckily for us, the brewer that I was working with, Michaela Charles, her dad happened to be a ceramicist. So he was able to um, to make our vessel for us and it's beautiful. And then we also had to think about what ingredients were going to go into it. Um, so there were certain grains that were being grown in the Fertile Crescent thousands of years ago. So we sourced a grower who was um, cultivating emmer, which is like an ancient form of wheat. And we were able to use this emmer that we got stone ground again so that it was in keeping with the with the technology that would have been present for the ancient Egyptians. And we used this emmer along with some malted barley because we have evidence that there's malted barley as well from grains that are in the British Museum. And we used those as the base for for our historic um, rebrew, and then we did it in the terracotta vessel, which we had cultured some yeast from a previous brew, and, and used that as as our starting culture. And you obviously wanted to make something that tasted nice because you were going to be tasting yes. lots of it yourself, <laughs> I presume. Yes, uh, completely selfishly. I wanted something that was delicious. Um, so from the point of view of, of brewing the beer, it was a real um, moment of trust um, to trust what the archaeological evidence was telling us was the process and not apply um, contemporary brewing best practice. So we didn't we didn't sterilise things. There's no boil. Um, we didn't bring anything to a temperature over 80 degrees because the terracotta wouldn't have been able to sustain 
sustain it. Um, so it was really one of those moments. I was terrified that there were loads of things that were going to go wrong. And Michaela, who I was working with as a brewer, it was wonderful to have two people on the on the project because we just kept going, we're doing this because we know from archaeological evidence that these grains are present. We know that this happened. We know the terracotta couldn't withstand a higher temperature. So let's just go for it and see, see what happens. Um, and it was it was really wonderful because to my knowledge, the other people who have embarked on rebrew projects, it usually gets to a step in the process where they make a decision to follow a contemporary brewing practice and modern brewing practice. Um, and I was really enthralled by the idea of being able to just do it as authentically as possible um, and to see what would transpire from that. And also because we weren't in a position where we had to make sure that it was going to be nice. Um, this really was an experiment in in kind of doing and making and finding out what happens when you do and make something and what learnings you can get from that. So the while I felt the beer was probably going to be lovely, um, I wasn't sure. So it gave us kind of total room for experimentation. So I wasn't dependent on having to make sure I had a beer for a launch. I had had a vat of beer that I needed to sell at a festival. Yeah, because you have made beer in the past and we'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do, the serving of the beer then, of this Egyptian beer, is there's a special way to serve it then as well. Yeah, because um, it kind of changes your mind about how ancient cultures existed. So we're not sitting here, Sharon, thinking that we're complete Luddites and we're, you know, completely backwards. We think we are the most modern people who ever existed because we are. But 3,000 years ago, people who lived 3 and 4 and 5,000 years ago also thought that they were the most modern people and the most sophisticated people who had ever been because they had. So this was a real lesson for me to realise that just because we're looking at the past, we're not looking at people who are unsophisticated just looking at people from from a different time. So in relation to how the beer was imbibed and drunk, um, vessels were a thing because it was so difficult to have vessels and to manufacture vessels that not everyone would have if you think about like glasses and cups and and bottles and those kind of things. These these, um, paraphernalia of of brewing and of beverages were very um, were very precious. So often, what would happen is that people would drink directly from the um, fermenting vessels. So we know then that the vessels were kept um, in specific breweries, which meant that they were usually cold and dark. And um, if they had a problem with temperature, they would dig them into the ground to keep them even colder. The wicking from the terracotta meant that the beer was kept um, cooler as well. And they would drink this beer as soon as it was finished fermenting, which is probably within about forty eight hours of fermenting is really, really quick and quite potent. They drink it using straws. Um, and this was so that they wouldn't get any of the um, the sludge from the bottom of the fermentation from the bottom of the beer um, in what they were drinking. So it would be a cleaner beer. And it also meant that they were really, really keen on hygiene as well. So you weren't going to be sharing like kind of cups around, but you'd have your own straw. So the Egyptians had a number of different types, ancient Egyptians had a number of different types of straws. In the museum, there's evidence of straws that are made from reeds and straws that are made from metal and straws that are made from terracotta. So it just depends. So your drinking straw is like the thing that you would bring with you so you'd be able to drink all this lovely beer. That's mad because there is so much talk about straws at the moment and restaurants getting rid of their straws, the plastic straws, because they're so bad for the environment. So it's mad to think that 3,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, Mm -hmm. they were using using straws. The straws were around then, obviously 
made from more environmentally friendly materials. Yes, and this is the thing. So maybe there's something about a human liking for straws. <laughs> this is something that we've evolved thousands of years ago. We started using straws. Um, but you're right, Sharon, we were using straws that were much more environmentally friendly. So we can guess that going by what's in the museum, that there was probably a lot of reed, and, uh, reed straws and straws made from natural fibres, but many of those don't exist anymore. So we have a predominance of straws that are made from terracotta and from metal, but that's only because they're the, the um, materials that we're able to sustain and last a bit longer. We're talking about a long time ago. <laughs> And like, God help you if you weren't a fast drinker, I'd say like a, a vessel of beer didn't last very long when there was three people sticking their straws into it. There wouldn't, they wouldn't be yeah. sipping it like a cosmopolitan cocktail of an evening. Like we'd never drink beer from a straw now. It would just be unheard of. Um, but it really is. It's one of those things that I think that um, we know that there was just so much beer that was being produced, like vast quantities of beer were being brewed um, by the ancient Egyptians. You know, that men and women brewed in the breweries. Um, and we know that they have this constant of supply and that written into people's contracts. You see, the Egyptians were great. They wrote a lot down and they also made um, little, um, little models of their breweries. So we have a lot of evidence that they shared with us that still remains but we don't have to do as much guesswork as with some other ancient cultures with the ancient Egyptians they kind of told us what was going on and because we know that they drank so much beer and beer was an important part of the payment for the workers and this is something that we we know people really enjoyed um, and that people shared and it was communal um, and if you think about how hot and, and sweaty and difficult it must have been to be in Egypt building things thousands of years ago the thing you'd really want is a nice cool drop a beer to keep you going. Absolutely. And as we said, this isn't the first time that you have done research and created a beer because you, along with your sister Judith, are the brewers of St. Bridget's Beer. Yes, I'm um, also yeah the brewer of Bridget's Ale, which is a beer that's inspired by how beers would have been brewed in Ireland a long time ago. So we kind of when we were putting together the idea for our beer too, we came up with um, items that we felt would be kind of as authentic as possible too. We like to use local ingredients, so we use malt from mint. And um, we don't have our own brewery, so we're delighted to be able to use the brewery for trouble brewing that's just up the road from us. And we use honey from our own bees. So this idea of like kind of linking to a history was something that was always kind of important to me but I'd never done it on such a scale um, where I had a whole team of historians and archaeologists archaeologists backing me up like I had on this project at the British Museum. And for this project you're inspired by the artefacts in the museum for the St Bridget's Mm -hmm. Eel. It was the nuns that said go make that beer. Yeah, exactly. So St. Bridget is the Irish patron saint of brewing um, and she happens to be from Kildare where um, I grew up with my sister and we have a pub and an off-licence there that's been in our family. Um, so it kind of made sense that we met the Bridgetine nuns who told me about the story of St. Bridget as a brewer. Um, because you have to remember as well that beer makes water safe to drink um, and it's also much more nutritious than just the sum of the parts of the grain and the yeast and the water on its own. So it's, it's a highly desirable product and it's kind of that kept me 
gets a lot of people going. Um, so developing this ability to brew and, and to master fermentation was really important um, when we weren't in a position to be able to be sure that the water quality that people were drinking, like say in Bridget's time, which had been about the 5th century, was going to be good. And Kildare is a town, it doesn't have any rivers, it's not on the side of a lake, it's um, it's basically there's, there's waters and wells, but they're underground. So the opportunity for those wells to be contaminated would have been quite strong and the act of brewing um, makes your water possible um, and more delicious and more nutritious. So definitely <laughs> inspired by all that. And the Bridget's Ale is a limited edition. It's not widely available, but you can get it no. in your in your pub in Kildare. Yes, so um, we've been we would we'd love to have it in more places, but we've been limited because we've decided to focus on using honey from our own bees. And as you know, and um, the last couple of summers have not been great. So we haven't had as much honey from the bees as I would hope. But this year I'm hoping for a good one. So you might see it out and about in more places. <laughs> but come to Kildare if not at that point. And what about the Egyptian beer? Will we see it in in Ireland? Um, I don't think that's going to come over here. Um, I'm we're, we're intent to talk to you if maybe there might be a possibility of doing more of it. Um, but um, at the moment, you'll just have to see it rather than taste it when the when the film comes out of that project um, um, from the British Museum. So you'll be able to you'll see what it looks like, but maybe not taste it, Sharon. <laughs> and which one's nicer, the Bridget's one or the Egyptian one? Oh, they're completely different. Um, I like Bridget, of course, because she's got a piece of my heart and I can drink more of her because I make it more regularly. Um, but it was a really fascinating project to work on in relation to to um, kind of learning from history um, because we kind of invent the wheel a lot. Um, you know, you forget that what has happened before um, can really have a relevance to what's happening um, now. And I learned an awful lot about, about brewing and brewing history through doing the project with the British Museum and hope it will feed into other projects. Watch this space. It all sounds so fascinating, as you say. And there's going to be a series of videos on YouTube from this Thursday, the 24th of May. Yes, yes. So you'll be able to catch it up on it then. And I'm popping over to the museum to give a talk um, on Friday as well. So that's going to be quite exciting. Well, best of luck with that. Safe travels. And thanks so much for telling us all about it tonight. Be sure to let us know if it does make an appearance in Ireland because I, I, I'll try a little sip. Absolutely. Um, always great to talk to you, Sharon. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Susan. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break we heard from award-winning drinks writer Susan Boyle about her collaboration with the British Museum to research and develop an ancient Egyptian beer. And earlier in the programme, Lisa Regan gave us an insight into this year's Galway West End Street Feast and her involvement in the International Refugee Festival. If you're just tuning in now and you missed that interview, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am and the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app and it's also on the taste.ie website voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. So the June Bank holiday weekend is imminent and in addition to the street feast in Galway's West End we also have Bloom in Phoenix Park to look forward to. Our final guest this evening is Denise Murphy who is the Beverages 
sector manager with Board Bia, and Denise is going to share some of the food and drink highlights featuring this year. Bon appetit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Good evening, Denise. You're very welcome to the programme. Thanks so much for taking the call. And I can't believe that this is the 11th year of Bloom. Yes, that's right. It's the 11th iteration of of the Bloom Festival this year. Um, At its core, I suppose, uh, 11 years ago, it was conceived as a garden festival. It's grown to become so much more than that. Um, The event spans over five days um, during the bank holiday weekend and the June bank holiday weekend. And it features everything from children's entertainment to flower uh, arranging competitions all the way to our primary interest, which is food and drink. Within the Bloom Food Festival, the the, um, Irish food and drink offering is provided within the food village. Um, The Bloom Food Market is one of the elements within the food village, and there are 70 companies participating in the food market, including a dedicated organic section with eight organic companies participating. This food market represents a key opportunity for small Irish food companies to engage with the Bloom Visitor Cohort, which amounted to 115,000 visitors last year. Some participant companies are in very early stage development, while others are more established artisan food producers. So 20 companies are new to Bloom this year, including a gluten-free bakery, uh, healthy snack producers, there's a producer of sheep's milk yogurt and a maker of gourmet marshmallows, of all things. And all of that ensures that the offer remains fresh and engaging to the visitor with a focus on the latest consumer trends and new products. Uh, there are a number of other um, food areas within the, the festival, the fresh food market at Bloom, um, ex- exhibiting there this year are 18 companies um, selling fish, quality assured meat products and horticulture. This is a very successful food market which provides consumers with the opportunity to meet the producers of their food and both sample and purchase the very best of Irish produce. There then is the um, the Bloom Inn, of course, which is my specific area of interest and expertise. Um, the Bloom Inn did not feature in year one of Bloom, it, so it is celebrating its 10th anniversary, if you like. And we showcase within it all that's new to the Irish craft drink manufacturing cohort. This year, we have the largest gathering of participants ever, with 25 fine companies up from 14 in 2017. And out of the 25, 14 new entrants to the category are going to be there. That's an indication of the prolific growth of the premium craft spirits area in Ireland. These aren't high-volume low-value products, they are premium products designed to be savoured in moderation. And our more established premium producers are performing remarkably well overseas. And for that reason, we believe that that given the right tools, the Irish premium beverages category will continue to grow, sustaining um, a a growing number of urban and rural manufacturing operations, building building exports and driving employment numbers. Of all the food producers and the drink producers are there, are there certain criteria that they have to meet? Do they have to be Irish? Oh, they absolutely must be Irish manufacturers. And they also are required to be engaged in the Origin Green Sustainability Programme. Origin Green, for those who aren't aware of it, and, and I doubt that there are too many out there at this stage, Origin Green is the world's only uh, food and drink manufacturing sustainability programme. 
and it is um, it's run by the state to provide to Irish exporters that USP um, that gives them the edge over um, their competitors in Ireland and in international markets. Um, it it states or it confirms to the trade that uh, this producer is manufacturing sustainably. And that is becoming more and more important as time goes on. So whenever you say that they're manufacturing sustainably, it's all about looking after the environment and having certain processes in place to to be more environmentally friendly. Exactly, exactly. When the programme was launched in 2014, uh, 2013 and 2014, um, the one overwhelming statement I recall from our chief executive at the time was that we needed to leave the planet in a better condition than it was for our, ch- for our children, in a better condition than it was when we got it, um, that it is only borrowed um, and that we need to respect it. And that is the thinking behind the Origin Grain Sustainability Charter. It's just to make sure that our Irish food and drink producers are not harming the environment in any way and that it, wherever possible, they're actually enhancing their local environment. That doesn't just mean they're the land and the use of the, the raw materials, but it also points to sustainability in, in manufacturing where people are concerned. So the local community benefits from Origin Green with um, Origin Green measures it, uh, actually required within each plan um, uh, enhancing your community. And whenever you were saying there about last year, there was 14 craft brewers and distillers showcasing and this year it's increased to 25. What would you attribute the explosion in that part of the sector to? Really, it's a global explosion within the Irish whiskey and the Irish craft beer categories. Um, And gin is pulling up the rear, you might say. Um, Those three areas, uh, the first two areas, whiskey and craft beer, have been growing in phenomenal levels for the last 10 years. Um, craft beer has now stabled off to a certain degree, um, and Irish whiskey is continuing to grow and shows no signs of slowing down. Um, to give you uh, some idea in terms of the craft brewery area, um, in 2013, we had just 12 craft brewers in Ireland. We now have 65, and we have an additional 30-plus brands that are um, sourcing their beer from existing suppliers and marketing it individually. Um, the growth in uh, distilleries, whiskey distilleries, has been quite phenomenal as well. We have uh, 14 active distilleries, uh, whiskey distilleries at this time. We have 12 more in planning or build, and um, it's all very, very exciting. There are 15 gin distilleries as against two that existed in 2013. Um, Most of this growth is being um, driven by consumer trends, uh, as I say, in international markets and at home to a certain degree. Um, The millennial is looking for something different, something new, and uh, it has to be said there isn't a huge amount of loyalty there, but that that, um, curiosity about new products um, is certainly driving uh, within the the whiskey growth and the craft beer growth. Um, it, it's also, um, I suppose, there is an increased level of disposable income available to uh, the younger the younger group, millennial and even Gen Z to a certain degree um, at this stage. 
and they use that to satisfy that interest in the new and the exciting. And I would imagine that people are surprised to hear that wine is being produced in Ireland. Indeed it is. Um, it's being produced. We have one client company uh, producing wine in Ireland. Um, uh, it's, the company is in Wicklow. Uh, the wine is fruit-based. So there is a strawberry and a blackberry wine available within the Bloom Inn from Wicklow Way Wine. And that product is doing exceptionally well in Ireland and beyond. It is. It's doing quite remarkably well. And I suppose that's a feature of the fact that it is the one and only of its kind. Now, with every food festival, I always say it wouldn't be complete without a demo stage with some fabulous chefs on it. And you have a very impressive lineup of Irish chefs that are going to demonstrate their skills and expertise with Irish produce. Indeed, we we do. I don't, unfortunately, have the schedule in front of me. and um, uh, But we do every year. We have a, a really exciting um, schedule of cookery demonstrations, which draws an enormous crowd with Nevin, of course, at the heart of that. So, but there is also a huge variety of, of, um, of new chefs that, that people won't be quite as familiar with. And I have a list of them here in front of me and they, like they come from all corners of Ireland. So we've J.P. McMahon from the West in Galway. We've Paul Flynn from the sunny southeast in Dungarvan. Adrian Martin, Gary O'Hanlon, Ros Purcell, Catherine Fulvio and Oliver Dunn. And of course, Rory O'Connell from, from down in Cork. So lots of the, the different parts of Ireland are represented there. And no doubt they'll be taking an opportunity to showcase some of the ingredients from their locality. Yes, indeed. They most certainly will. It it is going to prove to be quite an exciting uh, showcase, I believe. And what I find now at Bloom is often some of the gardens, because, okay, you have the food and drink side of it, and then, of course, gardening was how it had all started. But a number of the gardens sometimes have a food or drink theme to them. Indeed, it's a very competitive process, and I suppose there might be... um, there might be the temptation on the part of uh, competitors to, to focus to a certain degree on on food or drink uh, to secure their their space within the the gardens, but um, that's not always the uh, the objective of the organisers. Uh, the themes are different from year to year, but they are the one uh, commonality between all of them is that the the gardening entrants are just fabulous, really incredible highly recommend that anybody coming to the Bloom Festival makes time to see the garden first. It is absolutely amazing what they can achieve in a small space. Indeed, indeed. Um, they're, they're obviously operating within, uh, as you say, a very small um, sort of postage stamp almost area for the most part. And the creativity that goes into making those postage stamp areas feel like you're in an entirely different world once you once you set foot in the garden is really really remarkable really something to be seen there's there's great inspiration there no matter how big or small your garden even if you have the balcony if you're living in an apartment i think you can you can still get great ideas there as to what you can achieve at home absolutely absolutely and uh, it really broadens the perspective and finally, of course, it is a very family-friendly event and there are lots of activities for children to enjoy while they're there as well. There are. There are children's games, children's competitions, and uh, and really it's a fabulous day for the whole family, particularly if we if we get good weather, which it certainly seems like the good weather is holding itself off, um, hopefully for the June bank holiday weekend. 
But when the weather is good, uh, there is no place you'll have a better day for your family than a film. And I think one feature that's important to highlight is the Farms Kids Zone because a lot of visitors or people that are living in Dublin surrounding area, they may have children that have never had an opportunity to experience a farm environment or see some farm animals up close. It's very true, very true. And it's just the the way society is evolving um, at the moment that uh, families find themselves with their children being raised in, in quite high density environments with very little green space, um, many people um, uh, raising their families within the confines of the city centre and uh, very little opportunity for the children to actually see what it's like to um, to run around in the grass and, you know, uh, play with their friends and what have you. So it gives everybody an opportunity for a nice day out. Yeah, and there's great freedom for their, for them there as well, you know, because it, everything is enclosed and there's no traffic inside. So it's, it's very, very safe. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I highly recommend very it. I've been, I've been a number of times now by myself and with my children and it is a fabulous day out. I, my one tip to people would be to plan ahead, know how you're going to do your day, get there early, get to see the gardens, bring a picnic and enjoy some of the, the food that's on sale there as well, because there is so much to see and do that you want to get get the most out of your day. If listeners want to find out more about the schedules, timings, tickets, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, the best place for them to go is on the web, as is the case with most things. It's bloominthepark.com. They'll find all of the information that they need there and they'll also be able to purchase tickets. If they do purchase tickets at this early stage, they will get a, a small discount online. Another great tip there, buy the tickets early online. Denise, it's been lovely to talk mm-hmm. to you all about it and uh, we wish you the very best of luck with it. A fantastic event as always. Thank you very, very much, Sharon. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. And that was Denise Murphy with details about the food and drink features at this year's Bloom, which takes place during the June bank holiday weekend, which is not this weekend, but the following one, where does the time go? And if you're great at organising your diary a few weeks in advance, I want to tell you about some old Butter Roads events taking place in Ballinwillen House in Mitchellstown in County Cork. Award-winning chef Brian McCarthy from Green's Restaurant and Cask is taking up residence in the Ballon Willing Kitchen on Friday the 8th of June to host a Bao Bun Supper after a wine tasting in the wine cellar that's on site there at Ballon Willing House. And then on Saturday the 9th of June, food writer Aoife McElwain will host a workshop focusing on her book, Slow at Work, How to Work Less, Achieve More and Regain Your Balance in an Always On World. Aoife will interview Pat Mulcahy, owner of Ballon Willing House and Farm, which produces organic farm venison and wild boar and there will be a long table supper that evening and no doubt all the menus over those two days will include ingredients from the farm there and matching wines from Chateau Mulcahy in Hungary will be available with the meals. Visit the Ballon House Facebook page for all the details. And that brings us to the end of tonight's programme. Thanks again to all of my guests, Lisa Regan, Susan Boyle and Denise Murphy. Thanks also to you for listening and don't forget to get in touch at any time with your food and drink news, recipes and events. Email me on s.noonan at live.ie. Until next time, bon appétit. 
Thanks for listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. To get in touch with The Best Possible Taste, email Sharon at SharonNoonan.com or tweet Sharon at Queen of Org. As in, Queen of Organisation. Bon appétit. <laughs>